Kia ora, welcome to Asian and Aotearoa, a podcast of uncensored conversations with Asian creatives. I'm Jenna, and in this episode, I catch up with Chris Teese. Chris is our current Poet Laureate, which is basically the most significant award you can get for poetry in this country. I ask Chris about leadership, creativity, collaboration, and self-love. Enjoy. Welcome, Chris. Hello. Thanks for having me. Of course. At last, we're in the studio together. Would you mind doing a brief self-intro? Sure. Um, so my name is Chris Teese. I grew up in Lower Hutt, uh, just outside of Wellington. I'm a Chinese New Zealander. I am the current New Zealand Poet Laureate. And yeah, I just like to have fun with poetry. And so when you're advocating for poetry, what are your key messages? My key messages have been that poetry is for everybody. I try to get across that, you know, poetry is a very varied art form. Yeah. It's kind of like music. You know, there's so much out there in terms of styles and, and you know, what people do on the page and on the stage. So when people talk about not liking poetry, I often ask if that's because all they've ever been exposed to is the stuff that they were taught at school. Mm. And, you know, I still have people talking to me about, oh, should poetry rhyme? It's like, well, no, it doesn't need to. And it's probably because, the, you know, the way they've been taught poetry or sort of taught about the rules of poetry, that it has to be certain things. But my message is, no, it can break all those rules. And in fact, the best poetry does break all those rules. And it's a matter of just doing a little bit of reading and exploring and going to open mics and going to um, poetry slams just to experience all those different types of poetry. Nice. And so I read, I read the article in the spinoff about your day-to-day as Poet Laureate mm. and I have some questions. Yep. You said, my day job has never really bled into or affected my creative jobs and vice versa. How have you avoided this? Yeah, so I have worked in editing and publishing uh, since I finished university. So while they have involved words and storytelling, they make the most of that skill set that I have as a poet and as a writer. But I've also just been very careful to draw, you know, a line between the two and make sure that there are boundaries between the two of them. Even though things from my day jobs have sort of affected some of the language I've used uh, in my poetry. So when I first started working out of university, I was working for a legal publisher. So my first book does feature some legal references mm. in it. But I've never sort of thought, I'm going to write a poem about the judicial system or the legal world. Um, it's just not you know what I'm interested <laughs> in. And similarly, where I work now um, for uh, the Office of the Auditor General, you know, I'm not going to go write a poem about auditing or accounting. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Even though a lot of people don't ask me to. Mm. And maybe, you know, and because now I'm the poet laureate and I sort of wanted to just test whether I can write about things that aren't necessarily my passion, maybe maybe this could be an opportunity to, to try that out. Mm. But yeah, I've always made sure that um, my creative space is very separate from my sort of day job professional space just because it then allows me to have that freedom and that capacity to to focus on the poetry and focus on the creative stuff. Otherwise, I just feel like it, you know there, there are roadblocks. Yeah. So do people leave you alone when you're not at work? Contact you for work stuff? Like, do you switch oh, off? Right. Yes. That's what I'm asking. Yeah, I do switch off. So I recently went down to four days mm. so that I could sort of do more of the poet laureate stuff without feeling overwhelmed. And I've just had to yeah make sure that I 
switch off completely, you know, at the end of Thursday and, you know, Friday's are my poet laureate day mm. and work is really good with that and respecting, oh, that's good. you know, those boundaries. And I just sort of have to keep that up just so that I don't feel like I'm sort of committed to one side, you know, like yeah. I try to just keep those boundaries so that I can have those different headspaces to focus on those different things and compartmentalise everything. Yeah. You also wrote... I actually feel like that at this point in my career, I kind of need to make a decision about what is my focus and where does my heart actually lie. So, so where are you at with this? <laughs> after after that came out, I had a few workmates came came up to me and they said, "Oh, it sounded like you were going to like leave the office." And I was like, "Oh God, that was not my intention." What I think I was trying to say was, um, I've reached yeah, I've reached a point in a career where I've sort of had a lot of success as a poet and. You know, I have maybe 20, 25 years left before, you know, I quote unquote retire. And I, I think I need to really make a decision and it's going to be a hard decision about where do I put the emphasis? Do I put my emphasis on a day job that, you know, pays the bills, mm. pays the rent, allows me to go on holidays? Or do I put the emphasis on poetry and the arts, which I love deeply, but does not pay? There's There's no financial security in it. And I never went into that world thinking I would make big bucks or, you know, make a living from it. But, you know, with all these conversations about funding for the arts mm. and um, being able to live, you know, with a career in the arts, I'm now thinking, all right, well, I need, I want to make that choice. I want to have that balance in my life where I can still pay the rent, but, I, but you know, I'm dedicating a good solid amount of time to poetry and all my other creative endeavours. And yeah, I've never sort of had to think about this because I always just thought of poetry and all of that other stuff as just something I did on the side. Mm. It was all like, it was my hobby. It was my side hustle. But over the past few years, and especially over the last year, that has grown to inhabit so much space in my life. And it's made me think, okay, maybe I need to create more space and capacity for it and actually dedicate more of myself to it. Because when I... You know, when you look back on, on your life and what you've achieved, what is it that I want to be proud of? And what is it that I want to say, I'm glad that I actually made the time for that rather than think, oh, you know, I probably could have written the three books if, if I hadn't had a day job, you know, nine to five, Monday to Friday. Yeah. Because yeah, you've peaked kind of early, so I'm interested in what the next one's going to be. I hope this is not the peak. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, it, but you kind of, I think we've spoken about this before, mm. or I've read about it, and how you said, you know, the Poet Laureate, mm. you had thought, okay, maybe in 20 years. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I am the youngest person to be appointed into the role of New Zealand Poet Laureate. It is often seen as a role for poets who are much further along in their career, and when I met with the National Librarian, Rachel Essen, after receiving a phone call to say that she wanted me to be the Pot Laureate. She said to me, I don't want people to think of this role as the Gold Watch Award. So she herself was trying to shift the perception of what this role is and stands for mm. and the sort of poet who can inhabit it. And I think it's been interesting being in the role, being 39 when I was appointed and now 40, that there is more attention on it, especially from younger poets and younger readers. And that is exciting because it means more people know about the role and more people then find their way into poetry because of it. And 
I hope that this is something that sort of continues as well because you kind of want the Poet Laureate to be able to be out there and connect mm. with different audiences and cross you know, generations. And not that's not to say that some of the previous laureates didn't do that, but I think because the Poet Laureate role has traditionally been seen as like, you know, the old guard, the, the you know, that particular generation of poets, I think it, it did limit the scope of what it can do. So I have been invited to do a whole bunch of things that I don't think previous laureates would even have <laughs> been associated with. Like um, what? Well, like show ponies, you know, like, mm. um, yeah. um, but, you know, having said that, Selena Tuzitala-Marsh, who was um, two laureates ago, um, has, has since been in show ponies as well. I think it just really just opens up the world of the poet laureate. It really, yeah, changes what it can mean for contemporary Aotearoa. And, you know, people have asked me, like, what next after the Poet Laureate, will you retire? I was like, well, no, I hope not. Like, I, I want to continue writing. I want to continue doing things and pushing boundaries. Mm. And I, I kind of now see that the Poet Laureate role is a stepping stone to other things, that it isn't just, you know, here's the door that you leave through yeah. and you're done yeah. with your poetry career. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and you create you <laughs> you curated the Asian panel series for this year's Auckland mm. Writers Festival. Reflecting on that, what's something you learned from that experience? Mm. I took that on, even though I knew I was going to be really busy with the poet laureate role. But I did think it was a great opportunity to be able to do some of the things that I wanted to do as laureate with the resources and the platform of a big festival like the Auckland Writers Festival. So even though it was a lot of work, I think the benefits were definitely there to to yeah, make the most of that opportunity. And for me, I I definitely wanted to do a session that was about joy because I feel that throughout my career and throughout my writing practice, I've sort of felt like you get pigeonholed sometimes as a as a POC writer, mm. as a queer writer, that you have to write about tragic things. That mm. Those are the narratives that are expected of you. So I wanted to push against that, and I have been trying to push against that for a very long time. And so at the moment, one of the things that I am really sort of focused on and thinking a lot about is how do we platform queer and POC joy in our art and in our writing? That for me is like my, my mission statement for what I'm writing personally and what I, you know, want to do in terms of like creating events and um, finding opportunities for other writers. So I knew that I definitely wanted to do something like that at Auckland Writers Festival. I also knew that this was a chance to have some really tough conversations uh, that often don't get held in, in spaces like that, but on our terms. So one of the things for me that was really important about stepping into this role and sort of curating these events was not being afraid to really confront and push boundaries and sort of really test the audience's expectations of, you know, nice Asian writers mm -hmm. who only talk about nice Asian things. It's like, actually, there's a lot of stuff here that we need to unpack. And a lot of it is very uncomfortable. Like, I find myself not really knowing where I stand with a lot of the things that we talked about. Um, but being able to be part of those conversations and listen to them just creates that space for you to be able to explore and unpack all of that stuff. So one of the ones that we did was about racism. Mm -hmm. And I was very sort of like in two minds about whether or not we do a panel about racism again, because I've been on these panels before mm. and nothing changes and nothing comes out of it. And you know, it almost feels like a box ticking exercise. 
But I thought, actually, let's, let's, let's do it because I knew that there were people that I wanted on a panel like that who have not necessarily ever been on a panel um, to talk about things like that. And I thought that could come up with some, you know, juicy <laughs> opinions and yeah. maybe new challenges. And yeah, I think that was one of the, one of the best panels that we had at the festival. I, I could see in the room this shift in the audience, right? Really? Like I, I think people went in expecting one thing, but actually came out having a very different perspective and take on the topic. And the fact that, you know, what happened to Louisa Lim the night before, the night before yeah. being the victim of a racist, um, <laughs> of racist abuse is just, you know, cruel irony and um, justified why we still need to have those conversations and yeah. why something like that needs to happen at a space like Auckland Writers Festival, which can be very white and, you know, very well-meaning, but it's it's a bubble. Mm. And I wanted to put these ideas and put these conversations into that bubble to sort of burst it and to actually say, look, yes, we're going to do this in a safe space, but you also need to know that this isn't going to be that sort of nice <laughs> conversation about racism. Yeah. Yeah. After we did that, I wrote to someone from there whose contact details that I had because I, re I really wanted to publish that because it was recorded, mm. but no, denied. Uh, Unfortunately, because I think it was, I think it was really good. Yeah. Yeah. After that, I was wondering, would we ever, would I ever do something like that again? And I, I probably wouldn't personally, but I would be really happy if someone else took that conversation further, you know, created another panel or, or wrote something in response to it just to continue that conversation. Because that's the other thing about writers festivals and, and a lot of those panels that nothing happens after them. Mm. And that's, what's really frustrating that it, it is really just captured for like, you know, that one hour in a room and then that's it which is why I'm a bit disappointed to hear that you know you've been denied permission to release it yeah they said well because um Ida she recorded the whole thing uh, yeah. um and she said afterwards if you want it you can have it but I know that I would not be able to because mm. they own the rights yeah. to that and when I asked them they're like oh no we we select we select certain ones and put them up on the website I'm like okay I can read between the lines. Well, and that's, I was just talking to someone about that yesterday, about what gets selected and yeah. what gets uh, put hello. up, you know, <laughs> yeah. onto the website and is in the historical record because I was just looking at the Auckland Writers Festival website and seeing, you know, what does get put up there in terms of podcasts and recordings. And what it does, it, it, it sort of shuts out a lot of those great conversations that people are having at the festival in those smaller rooms that are being curated by mm. other people. Mm. And yeah, I wish if I had known that I would have pushed harder to ensure that some of you know those events were captured and then made publicly available. Mm. Because as I said, you know, I want people to respond to it. I want that conversation to, to continue and that can't happen unless you were there in the room. Yeah. Um, it's dumb for them because obviously, mm. even if they put it up on their website, I'd point to it and I'd have more people going to the website. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, what kind of things are you writing about at the moment? So I'm writing about joy. As I said before, that's sort of one of the things that I'm focusing on. My brother said to me after I published my last book, when are you going to write a happy book? <laughs> there were some moments that were really funny in that book. Well, yeah, that book does have like a lot <laughs> of really dumb jokes. And, you know, there's there's a lot, there is some joy in that book, but I guess the the overall vibe of that book is the apocalypse yeah. and the end of the world, um, which was deliberate. But I think writing about queer and POC joy is still 
political and is difficult because you don't want to do it in a cheesy way. And it almost feels like self-indulgent to to go into those areas as well. But I really want to I want I really want to explore that. I really want to test why as a writer I feel uncomfortable writing about my own joy when my mm. own joy makes me so happy. Like mm. all these things that I gather around me to keep me sane and grounded are important to me. So why do I feel like it's silly to write about them? And I, you know, throughout my books, well, at least from Hiso Mask onwards, I have put those little things into the poems because they are a very big part of my life and very important to me. And I want them sort of there on the record. But now I want to sort of like, yeah, blow blow all of that wide open and just really tackle this this concept of joy and why so many people find it difficult to write about. Which pop songs have specifically influenced your work? This is such a good question. Um, so in Heso Mask, there's a, a poem called Crying at the Disco. And for me, my favourite subgenre of pop music are pop songs that you can dance to but also make you sad. Mm-hmm. And are about going to the disco and crying. <laughs> it gets very meta. Yes. Um, I just love those sorts of songs because you have these really sad lyrics, but you can dance to it. And there's that feeling of, of euphoria and rush when you listen to that song. Examples, please. So, Dancing on My Own. I was own literally just thinking about that. Yep. I Iconic. Think, I think that, that is okay. like the key like, yes. crying at the disco song. Okay. Um, there's another song called Disco Down by Kylie Minogue, <laughs> uh, which is, yeah, a fantastic disco song, but it's it's a really, really sad song. Um, what else? Oh, there's a song by Icona Pop, who yes. are well known for I Love It with Charlie yes. XCX, but they have a song called Just Another Night, which, yeah, is again... A sad song about going out dancing, but you can dance to it. Do you have a playlist? Yes. Okay, I want it. I need to get that off you. Okay. We change your guess. Um, I asked Bala this question not so long ago, and I'm asking you as well. What's the secret to a great funding application? Hmm. What is the secret to a great funding? If we all, if we knew, <laughs> we'd have a 100 percent strike rate. I I actually have not done that many applications for myself I've actually ended up writing more support letters for people than than anything but I guess yeah like me yeah (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a it's a funny game eh? because one of the things that has always annoyed me is that you have to show how your project is going to fulfill CNZ's strategic Mm. priorities Mm. um yeah and that's always been like oh now you have to sort of like fit your project or your application into a different shaped box so that's always been quite annoying and I think there is an art to that to be able to not like twist or bend the rules but to actually write around Mm. that particular issue or that particular part of the application form one of the things that often gets talked about for writing applications is that because it is so project focused, you know, writers feel like they have to have a very watertight, solid concept or project for them to be able to get that funding. So they, you know, write these briefs and outlines about like, I'm going to write a poetry collection that's going to do this and this and this and this and this, and it's going to be um, inspired by this and this, and this is the, this is the structure of the, the manuscript. And, you know, for a lot of writers, what we just want, we just want time. You know, we don't necessarily know all of that going into it. I mean, we might, if we're sort of like 
two thirds of the way in or, or nearly finished, you know, a manuscript and we sort of finally have the pieces starting to fall together. But for, for the most part, when you start off the process, you just want that time to, to read mm-hmm. and to think and to daydream and to sort of explore different ideas and possibilities and fail as well. I think one of the things that funding applications don't allow you to do is to actually try and fail and learn from that. So for me, you know, going into those applications, it is it has always been about having that very clear project in mind. And, you know, I get it. I, I, you have to be accountable for why you're receiving money and how you're going to spend it. But sometimes for writing projects, it just doesn't feel like it's, you know, the the way to go, especially, you know, we don't make any money from our writing and a lot of it is unpaid labor. To have to get to a certain point before you actually have that idea, you know, that could be months or years of reading and planning and researching and writing. So I would really like a shift in that space. That doesn't necessarily answer your question, <laughs> yeah. but that is that is something <laughs> that, that is I, I always, you know, think about, mm. you know, I think, oh, you know, well, I think I'm about to start writing my fourth book. But when do I apply for funding? Like, do I do it now before I've actually written anything, but I do kind of have this idea in my mind? Or do I wait, you know, for six months or a year down the line when I actually do have a little bit of the writing done? But at that point, I might think, oh, actually, this doesn't work. And then I'll be mm. starting from scratch again. But I guess the secret is to know how to play the game, right? Yeah. To know how to give them what they want. And you can get really cynical with those applications and have to resort to their language and their way of thinking and basically just tick those boxes that they want to see so that everyone is happy and everyone can just get on with it. I also would like to see a shift from just having written applications, like give people the chance to do Zoom calls or provide videos or audio, make it more accessible for people who find it really difficult to write screeds and screeds and screeds of paragraphs and and words to justify why they should exist as an artist. How would you describe your leadership? (laughs) This feels like a job question. (laughs) (laughs) I have always felt in both my professional day job career Mm. and in this space in poetry that I, I, I don't seek out leadership. But for some reason, it seeks me out. And I I find myself promoted to leadership positions at work. And now, because of the pot laureate role, I kind of am pushed into that space, right? So it's not something that I feel comes naturally to me. But I have had people tell me that, you know, it's something that I can do competently. And for me, I guess, in the poetry space, I've kind of ended up where I am because there were so few people before me. When I was doing my master's in creative writing, the only Chinese New Zealand poet that I really knew about was Alison Wong. And she hadn't even published her first book of poems yet. That came like the year after I did my master's. So that's the that's the landscape that I was working in and growing up in as a young Chinese New Zealand poet. So it was very lonely and it was strange not having that sort of direction to sort of like, what do I, what am I going to go this way or am I going to push against that and go this way? I mean, in some ways it, it was a little bit of freedom to be able to just sort of forge that path by myself and, and figure it out for myself. But, you know, I wish that there were more Chinese and poets and writers that I could look to and that I could, yeah, model myself on or sort of learn from their mistakes. So because of that, yeah, I kind of feel like I've sort of ended up being pushed into this leadership 
You are the space. model. You are the leader. Well, that's the thing. And it's, it's, it's a really weird sort of space to be in when I never really sought it out and only by default because, you know, I happen to be, you know, one of the first to sort of gain that sort of mm. attention or to, to sort of like push myself into different spaces. And I have difficulty owning it sometimes because I don't want to necessarily be seen as that sort of leader because I don't think what I've done or how I've done certain things is sort of worth that sort of attention, <laughs> which is, I think, you know, just trying to be modest. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's a weird thing to grapple with, especially at my age, I guess. You know, I've heard someone, you know, describe me as an elder of <laughs> yeah. Asian music yeah. writing. It's like, God, I'm only 40. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, I, you know, that's the thing. And you know, that's what's like fascinating looking to Australia and to America where their Asian writing communities have grown a lot faster and a lot bigger compared to ours. And, you know, they are, if not years, decades ahead of us. And so it's been interesting in the past couple of years learning about what it's been like in Australia and America and actually seeing they have that generational spread in terms of emerging Asian writers and established elder Asian writers because it's just been happening a lot sooner for them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Have you done a 360 evaluation before, like in your no, day job? No, mm. I've never done that. <laughs> it scares me. <laughs> Have you had TTDT training before? We do at work. Mm. It's, well, I mean, what we've had is quite basic, sort of introductory stuff. And I am on a team that is working on like a Te Amari strategy mm. for the office. And that has been really heart-filling work because, I mean, it's difficult, right? And it's, um, there are no easy answers with that, but they are some of the best meetings I get to go to at work to have really robust conversations about our obligations, about mm. structural racism, mm. about outcomes for Māori, because we don't normally talk about that. You know, it's always been like sort of held at arm's length and, oh, we don't need to really think about that. But now we're shifting into a space where actually as an officer of parliament, we really need to think about how we embrace this. And also, you know, what is our position on a lot of this? If we're holding other public organisations to account, yeah. what are we doing? So being part of those conversations has been really great. And I just have learned so much, you know, personally from them. And I have still so much to learn. Like one of the things that I really value when people talk about this is that it's not just, it's not a destination, right? It's a, it's a continuing journey. Mm. We hate the word journey, but we have to use the word journey. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, it is this journey and you are constantly learning and you're constantly being challenged by different aspects of it. And I like that. I like being in that sort of space. Yeah. Because if you don't feel challenged, you're just going to be complacent or you're not, you're, or you're basically just going to not care, right? Is that led by Māori? It is. So we do have someone in the office who is leading all of this, oh, yeah. who is Māori. Yeah. yeah. It's top of mind for me because last week we had a pilot workshop day mm. with these two facilitators from the Treaty People. I think they do work with Asian supporting Tino Ranga Teratanga. Mm. And it was really impactful mm. and good reminders, especially, I think, this time of year and we're going into elections. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, yeah, that's actually, that's our history. I work for an NGO. We've got three strategic poems, one of them being Māori Succeeding as Māori. So we've got a Māori responsiveness group that are just amazing. And I mm. haven't worked because I come from a really corporate background. I've never worked anywhere where it's 
that's actually been part of the strategy. Yep. All of the kaimahi, the staff, it's like super diverse. Mm. And one of the guys, he was Toiwi, and he was kind of, what he was saying was, I get that that's the history, but we need to be in the present and look to the future. I'm like, no, we need to be acknowledging, mm. we need to be acknowledging the shit that has happened. Yep. I think about this all the time because mm -hmm. of where we as Chinese New Zealanders have come from and all of the bullshit that we had to go through uh, in terms of how the New Zealand government treated us mm. and, you know, all the legislation that was passed to basically prohibit um, Chinese men from bringing wives and children here, you know, how they limited the number of Chinese men coming, you know, basically treated them as cargo on ships, the poll tax legislation, all of that really heavy historical stuff is still, I think, felt, you know, I, I get angry about it <laughs> sometimes when I think about like all of that stuff. And, you know, there will be some people, including Chinese New Zealanders, who think, oh, that's just the past. Don't worry about it. Forget about it. But it's like, actually, there's still a lot of people who don't know about that yeah you know people who um come to me and, and say oh i didn't know that about the poll tax it's like well yeah i guess if if you're not chinese you probably wouldn't ever come across that because it's not part of your family's immigrant story or anything like that so for me it's always been um important to continue to acknowledge that part of our history because it will shape the present and the future there's no point sort of just turning our backs on it and thinking oh well that's the past is the past let's not let's not drag that up anymore and then yeah when, when you think about like the chinese and the maori relations yeah again i think we need to talk about like how that was like in the past because that's gonna give us so much to learn from in terms of how we think about the present mm. and you know how do we actually strengthen those relationships into the future or yeah, you know, yeah what actually what is the relationship let's yeah. define that to begin with yeah yeah i could talk ages about that anyway um <laughs> by the time this comes out okay mm. we would have had chinese language week mm -hmm. Tell me about the part you've played in calling out the major issues with it. So for Chinese Language Week 2022, I was approached to write a poem for them that they would put on the website. And for years, I have been pretty meh about the whole thing because it's very obvious that when they say Chinese Language Week, they mean Mandarin. And I had never seen anything done by them proactively to promote or support Cantonese, which is my family's language, or any other Chinese language out there. And so I've never really had anything to do with them. And it's, it's always been something that I've sort of like, eh, you know, it happens, but I'm not going to engage with it personally. So they approached me last year to write a poem. And I sat on that message and then I thought, no, I'm going to decline this, but I'm also going to tell them why, because they need to hear it right. And I, I know for a fact that they have been told this year after year after year and nothing's changed, you know, by other members of the community. And so I wrote them this very, very long Instagram message because that's how they approached me. Mm. And I, it was so long that I had to split it over <laughs> oh <my laughs> several God. messages because I didn't know that Instagram DMs have a, have a character limit. <laughs> and I sent them this message, didn't hear from them for a while. And then they just came back with this sort of very bland um, oh, you know, we, we definitely want to support um, other languages, but, you know, this is why we focus on Mandarin because it's taught in schools and, you know, it's blah, 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 and didn't really address any of the points I had raised. And so I just went back and said, no, look, again, you've, you've not listened to me and you've not sort of taken my feedback on board um, until something changes. I don't want to contribute anything to this. 
And it's kind of funny because it was like, I thought, okay, maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe I won't have anything to do with it now and I'll just walk mm. away from it. And I don't know what it was about last year, but um, that's when all of this sort of stuff started coming out from uh, members of the community, uh, reporters, basically challenging them on, you know, why they focus on Mandarin and why they ignore all the other languages. And so I thought, okay, maybe I can write a poem about this. And I wrote two poems and I put one of them out on Twitter. And for lack of a better word, it kind of went viral, like, I think it probably is like my most read poem based on like the number of retweets and shares and, you know, all the other places it's ended up popping up in. Like, I know people took it from Twitter and then started sharing it on Facebook and Instagram. No, I had people tell me afterwards that someone had actually just emailed the poem to them. Yeah, it was my first poem as Poet Laureate and it kind of, oh. it kind of was my flag, you know, yeah. this, this is who I am. This is the sort of Poet Laureate I'm going to be. This is the, this is an issue that's very important to me. And yeah, there was just this uprising. <laughs> it was amazing. Like, yeah. I didn't anticipate that I would be a part of it in that way. So, and then throughout the week, I ended up sort of gathering comments from other Chinese New Zealanders about all their other experiences with with their own mother tongues and different Chinese languages, and, and publishing that on the spinoff. And it was a really, um, it was a really amazing piece to work on to hear that so many Chinese New Zealanders struggle with. Chinese language week because it doesn't represent them and mm. it, they don't see themselves in it. Like I you know, was talking to my mum my mom about it and she had no idea that there was even a Chinese language week. I was like, it just goes to show that if members of the community don't know, you haven't done your job. Hello? And that's because it's not aimed at yeah. members of the community, despite yeah. all they say and you know, so their attempts to sort of have like, you know, certain people on their website. So yeah, I, I feel like I've just played a small part of, of that whole week because there were so many other amazing people like Ida Tang mm. who sort of really did, you know, lift the lid on mm. a whole lot of that stuff. And I just did what I could in my role. Yeah. Yeah. So where I work, we celebrate every Pacifica Language mm. Week throughout yep. the year. I Same. think it's like 11 or is it nine? Nine or 11? There's like a lot. Mm. And how that is run and the resources for that, it's very obviously the people who run it, they're not white people. <laughs> But it's Chinese Language Week. It's so obvious the intention of it. Yeah, yeah, and which is a shame because it oh, could be so amazing. It could be so amazing, and you know, I get that there are all sorts of political things that have to be addressed about it. But for me, that just you know, come on, just be bigger and bolder. Don't <laughs> don't you know <laughs> succumb yeah. to that pressure. So yeah, when when stuff started sort of bubbling up for this year's one, I was like, oh god, they. They haven't learned. They haven't. They haven't learned. Any time that they do, so you know, this is just me being very cynical now. But any time that they now do mention any other Chinese language other than Mandarin, it just feels very token and like, oh, we'll just do this to keep them quiet. Because yeah. there is still no concerted effort to mm -hmm. to include any of those other languages. You know, even the name Chinese Language Week is wrong because there's no such thing as yeah. Chinese. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to actually define you know those other languages. Yeah. I messaged Nathan Joe, who, for new listeners, is also an award-winning poet and playwright and past guest. Anyway, I asked Nathan if he had a question that I could ask you today. <laughs> Nathan asks, what is one poem that every gay Asian should read? Oh, the first one that comes to mind is one by Chen Chen, who is an American poet. Love him to pieces. He's actually been out to New Zealand before for Verve Festival a few years ago. I can't remember the exact title of the poem, but it's a poem about his white partner 
going to family dinner with his with Chen's uh, Chen's parents, and for me, it's a poem that mixes sadness and frustration and anger um, really well. So Chen Chen's parents um, in this poem clearly aren't happy that he has a white partner, but the poem sort of starts in the place where Chen Chen has written to them saying, right, my partner's coming to dinner and this is how you're going to behave. So basically like laying ground rules. And I won't sort of try to break the poem down because, you know, that would be doing it a disservice. But that is a poem that always sticks in my mind as one that really captures that, yeah, that those mixed feelings about being Asian and gay and wanting your parents' approval and love, but having a white partner that they just won't accept. Um, my parents love my white partner. Um, I just want to make that clear. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, when I told my dad that I had a boyfriend, his first question was, is he white? Really? Yeah. And I was like, yes, he is. And for some Asian parents, they won't say it, but they want their kids to have Asian partners. It's still a, it's still a thing, mm. right, that some people are upset by. Funnily enough, my mum, many, many years ago, before I'd even really come out to her, did say to me and my brother, oh, you know, I think, you know, I've accepted that you two might not have Asian partners and that's okay. So that was a very sort of strange thing for her to just come out. Like we wouldn't even talk about anything related. It just, she should have just came out with it. It was Ooh. almost like just letting you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, back to Chen Chen's poem. I just, I just love how he captures that, that feeling and that, um, that, that frustration. Nathan also wrote and performed in the play Scenes from a Yellow Peril, mm. which you also were involved in. Tell me about what that experience was like for you. Mm. So I was in um, a play reading version of it for the Auckland Arts Festival in 2021. And we did that at the Civic, which was like incredible it was to awesome. be on stage. Jane Young like basically harassed me to be in that really? reading because um, she, she wanted me because she knew that, yeah, I could perform um, in, a, in a particular way, I guess, with, with poetry and because of the, the play is effectively poetry. She said, I really want you involved in this. And I thought, oh, no, I'm not an actor anymore. I don't do that stuff anymore. She goes, no, 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 I've got to have you. So she basically wore me down and, and got me involved. And I loved it. Like the experience was incredible. When you're a writer, a lot of what you do is in isolation. So when you get a chance to work with people collaboratively on a project like that play reading, you get this rush, you get, you, you feel like you've fallen into a community that has like a mission statement and, and is working towards that. I've talked about this before, but that was the first time I'd ever been involved in any sort of art project where everyone was of Asian descent. And that was really special. That sort of made me realize, ah, oh, I don't have to code switch or behave in a certain way or censor myself or pretend to be a different person around these people because we all sort of come from a similar place. Like we're very diverse in terms of like where we're from, but there are certain ways of thinking and certain ways of talking about things that we could just, we were already there. We didn't have to work towards that. And I just got so much out of that experience. I'm really glad that Jane mm. <laughs> wore me down and got me in and yeah, getting to, to read um, or perform on the civic stage yeah, was a dream come true because I've been going there for years for shows mm. and for the film festival and things like that. And it was such a powerful experience. Like when I first read the script as well, my first thought was I've never read anything like this. I've never read anything written by a Chinese New Zealander 
that goes this hard. It goes into really uncomfortable places. You know, I've I've felt like I've really tested my own personal boundaries with what I write um, in terms of what I've been comfortable with putting out there. And it's this constant growing process. But reading what Nathan had written, I was like, oh, shit. He's, <laughs> yeah. he's, he, went he's, hard. he went hard. He's dropped the mic everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, I need, yeah, I, 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 did, I do need to be a part of this. You know, that week of workshopping and rehearsing was just fantastic. Like to not only witness his creative practice and how he works, but also seeing how other Asian arts practitioners bring their entire selves to a process like that. It was amazing. And I, I think I learned so much from it. It made me want to be braver and bolder in my own writing. And I think that ended up contributing a lot to how I ended up finishing Supermodel Minority and actually being like, right, this is, this is, this is it. You know, this, I can do this. So yeah, being a part of that and seeing how Nathan worked kind of gave me permission to just, just do it. Now, you know how you're talking before about joy and how mm. there's something slightly uncomfortable. I'm kind of like that with self-love, mm. but I put that as a theme and I want to talk about it with every guest. Yep. Okay. And I kind of, yeah, I don't ask. So do you love yourself? Cause I feel like that's kind of confronting, but what do you think about self-love? Mm. I was a very angsty, moody teenager. And, you know, looking back, I now understand it's because I was struggling with my sexuality and struggling with identity and, you know, who, who am I? How do I express myself? Is it safe to express myself? What if I have to bottle this all up and, and feel this way for the rest of my life? And so I think I didn't love myself back then because one because I, I was so confused but also because I was allowing myself to feel that way otherwise why why would I deserve to love myself if this is how I treat myself and I carried that for such a long time and you know there's all this other stuff that contributed to it like racism in the gay dating scene and sort of not being seen as desirable or only desirable to a certain type of gay man which you know complicates you know the experience as well it took a really long time for me to deal with all of that and to get to a place where i realized if if i don't change something i'm never going to be happy and i'm never going to love myself and i remember when i came out to my mum, she said to me but you're going to be so lonely because she just had this assumption that gay men live lonely lives because they'll never be able to have everything that a heterosexual man or a heterosexual couple have like children and family and all that sort of stuff. And I had to say to her like, mum, if, if I don't do this, I'm going to end up lonelier than I am now. Mm. This is my chance to actually break that and find what it is I need to be happy, to be able to be comfortable in my own skin. Yeah, I feel like it's this, again, it's a continuing journey. Yeah, There are days where I don't feel good in my own skin still like I think sometimes like the pressure of like the poet laureate role and all this other stuff does make me feel like I don't deserve to be here that imposter syndrome that feeds into how you feel about yourself is still at play even for me you know after all these years and it's just a constant need to just address yourself and say look don't be such a dick and just yeah, like accept it get over yeah. yourself and <laughs> I wish that I could go back and, and tell my younger self that, you know, as, as much as I hate that it gets better 
phrase that gets mm. thrown around because it's so complicated. Like it, that's not that's not everything. I wish I could tell myself that it did, it would get better because it, there were days where I just felt like this is it. This is my life from now on. This is this is the black hole that I'm going to have to live in. And I'm so grateful now for the friends and the family and the community that I have around me because they are what makes me me, mm. and they are the source of my joy, which makes me feel like I can love myself because I have them around me. Great answer. Ooh. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> are all poets romantics? I think we, yeah, I think they are, um, even if they won't admit it. I think a lot of poets start from that space and just never shake it off because I think poetry is very romantic yeah. and it's all about, you know, the outpouring of feelings. People just sort of find different ways to to put that out into the world and, and, and shape it. How spiritual would you say you are? Mm. I would say I am somewhat spiritual. Um, I definitely believe in spirits and the afterlife and other realms and things like that. I'm not religious at all. I understand the need for religion and for why people have it in their lives, but it's just never something that I have gravitated towards or, or felt the need to explore or have a, as a part of my own life. But spiritual, spiritual, <laughs> spirituality, uh, yeah, definitely. And I think maybe that might come from a bit of my upbringing with my dad being from Hong Kong and still sort of following a certain way of living. So, you know, we do all sorts of things like Baisan and, um, you know, all the special holidays and stuff where you offer things to the dead. You know, he makes sure that I know about them and that I need to go home to do certain things mm. with them. So that has always sort of encouraged me to keep that door open and to, to sort of have that as a part of my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not something I think about that much, but one of the things I do when I get on a plane is I speak to my grandparents and I ask them to ensure that we have a safe journey. Yeah. Yeah. I just feel like there is something out there looking out for me. Yeah. I just don't know what that is. And we don't need to know. We don't need to know, yeah. But in my mind, every time I get on a plane, I think it's my grandparents for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. So I, 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 I ask them to give us a safe journey and then I thank them. All four? All four. Mm -hmm. I say their names yeah. and then yeah. at, at the end of the, the flight, I thank them for, for mm. guiding us safely. And that's the only time I do it. I don't do it for <laughs> anything else. And I don't know why. Yeah. Okay. Finish these sentences. I'm feeling inspired by. Young poets. I've done workshops with um, high school students and, and young poets recently. And to be able to see what they come up with in like half an hour is incredible. And I recently went to a poetry slam semi-final in Auckland. And to hear what these young poets can write and can perform is so great. It makes me want to be a better poet. And I think that's really important that you, you are inspired and pushed by the younger generation. Otherwise you just stagnate and just end up in your safe zone, right? So yeah, young poets. I'm really looking forward to. Dinner tonight. <laughs> what are you having? <laughs> We're going to um, a restaurant here in Wellington called Rita. Um, it's actually my third time there and I love it every time we go. I think this is the thing like... <laughs> 
my partner Michael is always saying like, you and your family, whenever we go on holiday together, you're always just constantly thinking about the next meal. It's like, well, yeah, that's that's how we roll. Like this is this is this is what's important to us. So mm. I am constantly thinking about what am I going to have for lunch? What am I going to mm. have for dinner? <laughs> what kind of food is it? It's European. Oh, yeah. But what they do is they change their menu daily based on what they can get a hold of mm. and sort of, you know, adjust things. So it's very seasonal. So yeah, so I have no idea what we might be eating tonight, but it's always been very delicious. I'd love to be known for. Being generous. Chris Tease, thanks so much for coming in for Thank a chat. Thank you for having me. That's it. Thanks for listening. This episode was made possible thanks to Foundation North and Creative New Zealand. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, share and review the podcast and stay tuned for updates. <laughs>